Hello, I'm Charlie. And I'm Tom. We were two members of at least three bands during the late 90s and early 2000s. We went to school together. We worked together. We acted in movies and plays together. We travelled to some weird places. And we've met some unusual and interesting people. And we've explored almost every underground music venue in London and made a lot of memories along the way. The Recollective is where we share those stories, songs and memories. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening and welcome to the Recollective podcast. My name is Charlie and as always I'm joined, not in the studio, but in a remote location north of the Watford Gap by my good friend Tom. Good evening. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasant sunny day here in Levy, Surrey. How is it in Sheffield? It's not so good. It's been all right. It's going to be 27 degrees on Wednesday, so that'll be nice. Summer's coming. I'm here in the basement. Um, yeah, we're here to talk about angular music today. There was a bit of a prompt in the last episode when we decided that Angular might be a theme. I can't remember what the song was that prompted it. I can. It's a very Angular tune from the 90s. It must have been the uh, Camden School for Girls. Yeah, mid, late 90s. Uh, Manic Street Preachers, it was. Um, Kevin Carter. Yes. Uh, and, and, And we spontaneously, on air, as it were, decided to do an episode on the theme of Angular. (laughs) <laughs> Angular is a much used word in music yeah. journalism, Tom. Um, but is it though? Is it is it used a lot in journalism? Is that why this thing came into our lives of being Angular? Perhaps it was at a time when we were, yeah. I don't know, uh, particularly uh, reading the, the the journalism of the enemy and, and and drowned in sound and things like that. We definitely had a manager use the word. I mean, that's what comes to my mind. Is a is a specific manager at a specific point in time saying you need to sound more angular <laughs> tell us more who uh, was this manager and what it was, was nick, the time it was nick moore and it would probably have been in 2004 to mm. 5 2005 as we will discover later in this episode 2005 is peak angular i would say absolute peak and it's also when we released our first album or certainly the first half of it because we did it in two parts, Mental Notes, which uh, has some angular moments, but perhaps was um, not angular enough for some. But actually, we were doing fairly angular things before that. And there was definitely like a build-up from about 2003 forwards to about 2006, seven. By that time, angular was dead. So we're really yeah. like in the middle of the, the, the noughties here. I still feel like it's an adjective that some people have a very clear idea of the meaning in their heads. But I'm not sure if the, the meaning is shared between people and what you might think of Angular and what another person might think of Angular is completely different. As we will discover today. That's my contention. Um, so when I think about it, I think about, OK, it's, it's definitely to do with guitar music, right? Well, yeah, we're talking about that kind of Angular. I, I just Googled Angular music because I thought, mm. actually, is this a thing that you would find? Um, and of course, what you get is something quite technical which is not what we mean. An angular melody is one in which the melody moves by bigger leaps, often in dissonant intervals, such as a seventh, and in different directions. So that would be more... Yeah, I'm trying to think of people who leap around melodically like that. But in in theory, that that could apply to a piece of classical music as much to a rock song. Oh, yes, I'm sure that's what was, was meant. We don't necessarily mean that. 
Um, in fact, there's a whole thread on Reddit about what makes music angular to you. <laughs> so there's clearly an ongoing debate about this. Um, to me, it's about it's it's heavily typified by uh, syncopated rhythms. Yes, by guitars that don't have uh, that are not power chords and not grandiose, big sounding guitars. They're quite thin and weedy, but and, and single notey. Uh, oh, I see. Maybe that's where we differ. Yeah, I suppose that there is quite a lot of single notiness and spikiness but not necessarily weedy see i also i also classify Maybe the, the wrong word the stabbing chord as yeah. within the general orbit of angular um, okay so do you recall zombie by the cranberries and the opening not angular so that's the antithesis of uh, of angular to me that that's very unangular yeah i think i do I agree entirely with you. And I think in general that the 90s was a really unangular decade with a few exceptions, which we could discuss in due course. But um, And that's why most of what we've been listening to, we're going to jump. I mean, there are two particular periods in history, right? One is the post-punk, new wavy bit, not all of which was angular. And then you go straight to the mid-2000s, really, to get the proper angular stuff. Um, but your first track is from neither of those eras. No, my first track is from 1966, because all all uh, music has its antecedent. And I I don't know, it seemed, to me it seemed like a no-brainer. And partly because we mentioned this song, although in a very different context, in an earlier podcast. But to me, this is kind of the birth of Angular. And it's partly because it is so different from what came before, on the whole, by this band. And it's very different from the other bands of the era, and it's the opening track of an album called Revolver. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Mm. And uh, it just slaps you around the face in an amazing way. And it's not its not what we maybe think of as Angler when we're thinking about those mid-2000 bands and their influences in the 70s. But it's got the, that sharp stabbing chord, the, oh, I don't know what the technical word is for the rhythm. Um, and it, it smacks you around the face with its non-stodginess, its lack mm. of strummed uh, or power chord guitar playing and i think that certainly obviously it's explicitly ripped off by the jam in that late mm. period um and i think i think it's a more broad influence on that first wave of anger in the late 70s well let's have a, a listen let's have it one two three four <laughs> one two Let me tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man I think that the, there's something quite angular about the guitar solo as well, just like wild and angry. Um, I think there's a, there's a track on Rubber Soul from the year before called The Word, which has something of that kind of like angry stabbing rhythm. But other than that, I mean, this is, 
I can't imagine what it would have been like to have heard this the first time when you're used to hearing the Beatles of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Maybe some slightly spikier stuff like Drive My Car, but I think it would have been pretty amazing. So the main angularity is that uh, guitar that I'm hearing pan to the left, which is presumably George Harrison, is that right? Yeah, I think you notice it's another little angular lead part comes in here. But yeah, I think this has the whole, one of the two of the key hallmarks of angular for me, which is, which is one, it has the, the the stabbing guitar on the snare drum, right? So you're you're locking the guitar right in with the rhythm section, but in a very stabby way, not in a kind of strumming or hitting the power chords. And the other is the interplay between the bass and the guitar. So the bass stops in time for that stabbing chord. And we'll see that a lot, including in the next song. But this is the very beginning of distortion in general for guitar music. Yeah, well, Len Lennon claims the first distortion ever was on I Feel Fine or something, which I think was from a year or two before that. But yeah, I mean, by this time, they're like, they're going for it with distortion. I think it must have been, it must have been amazing hearing that for the first time. I mean, people talk about Sgt. Pepper's, but that is not a typical Beatles song. It's, you know, respect to George Harrison as well, because I don't know where that came from, you know. Mm. Yeah, my, my kind of um, my feeling about um, distortion in the Beatles was was back in the USSR. I think was was the one that I thought really brought the distorted guitar through the most in my recollection. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of heavy distortion on the White Album. So I don't know. We can debate whether that's truly angular, but for me, it's right up there with Angela Merkel. Well, I'll stop making Angela Merkel joke now. What's up next? So we're, we're leaving the 60s, which was not generally the angular decade. Yeah, so what I think is really nice about what you've done is you've kind of placed it in context because guitar bands from, as you mentioned in the intro, the post-punk era are largely those who are accredited with starting angular music um, and clearly they had their antecedents. Um, this song, if you were talking to Muso's who were talking about the 2004-2005 scene that we were a part of um, would have been considered by those people the kind of like godfather, granddaddy of angular music. But of course it, it isn't. Um, and as we'll find out in my last track, there is a there's a nice symmetry between this song and the last song we'll play because the guitarist on it, um, guitarist in... The band's gang of four, um, Andy Gill, uh, then went on to produce a number of bands. Um, one of them was the Future Heads, um, and uh, they were also kind of around in our time. And I think a band that we played with at the Dublin Castle at once. Um, this is Damaged Goods, and it's a song I discovered actually only in recent years, last four or five years. I don't think I knew about it no. early on. I, I mean, gang of, sorry. I, I adore it. I just think it's visceral. It's 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 got the characteristics of um, syncopation. I think are hallmarks of um, 
uh, angular music and and as you say that interplay between bass and guitar it's so tight really really tight it's got that driving uh, nature that that kind of like propels the song along to the point where you think oh it's finished and you don't know how long it's lasted maybe a minute or two um the the kind of spitting nature of the rhythm is also really in keeping with the the lyric particularly the the line your kiss so sweet your sweat so sour um i think that's really visceral and almost blends nice. in with the sound Nice yeah. angular sibilance going on there. Yeah, like good use of consonants is required in angular. <laughs> but this is uh, this also um, as as Charlie and I discussed this. This would have been on on my list, but you know we had to carve them up because not because I listened to this band when I was you know feeling angular back in the two thousands or whatever. But this is the band that is most clearly of all of those post punk bands like very angular, <laughs> uh, and and it's also you know we we were. Our band was sometimes, I don't know if we were compared to them, but it was the kind of band that you wanted to be compared to and people would sometimes compare you to if they were being flattering. And they would mm. give you CDs. I mean, there are a lot of bands that we could have played tonight from this period, many of whom we were told to go and listen to by people from record exec- record companies. Mm. I just want to mm. put that out there because as I was preparing for this episode, I really remember that. I was like... People giving you CDs of magazine or television or whatever and go, go listen to this. You want to be a bit more like this because this is cool right now. Cornelius. I, I think we... <laughs> that's different altogether. But I think we rebelled against that a little bit. So I'd never listened to Gang of Four. And I think uh, really at the time, I think it's partly because people were telling us to do it. Like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I actually wouldn't have mind, minded a record, recommendation for uh, Gang of Four. Yeah, In retrospect, I remember being recommended The Left Bank... <laughs> uh, lo- lovely band, but not, not nothing we were going to ever replicate. Uh, and as, as I said earlier, Cornelius. Do you remember the A&R oh, man who, who gave you that? Cor- I thought that was all a certain manager of us. Cornelius. Now, who gave us Cornelius? No, not Neil Ridley. An A&R man. Yep. Uh, well, Neil Ridley definitely also gave me, a, I forgot about Cornelius, a CD of magazine. Who I, I had to listen to, but it's just, it's just not angular enough to make it into <laughs> make the cut on the phrase. <laughs> Um, but yeah, maybe Gang of Four would have been more useful. Okay, let's, let's listen. It. Let's hear it. There's no obvious point to break and start talking in this song. This is the obvious point because the guitar stopped and the guitar is. I mean, that's a, a real ear raiser, isn't it? It's like 
it's it's almost nasty, but it's it's so kind of grippingly angular that you you know it's great to listen to, but it's like oh, it's a harsh sound. I like in the middle eight the drum room sounds. Um, as we all know, drums are all about the room. Oh yeah, now that's the double drum, I reckon. Two drummers, I mean two drum tracks. What I like about this is that they've double-tracked the drums, but they haven't bothered to d- double-track the BVs. And normally you do the back and vocals <laughs> to get that kind of chorus yeah. effect. But you've just got to kind of go, Aww. This kicks off. Bass playing, uh, bass playing is reminiscent of Jim. Yeah. Really stripped back production as well. You don't feel like there's much sauce on anything in particular. Very I mean, it sounds like a guitar plugged into one of those like um, sort of practice amps that is literally about you know six inches square. And you can get to like tune up, and that's obviously. probably worth noting that Andy Gill unfortunately passed away in February of this year. Did he? Uh, yeah, he uh, died of pneumonia, although his wife um, apparently said she suspects he was uh, an early victim of COVID-19. If you had pneumonia, it does seem quite plausible. Oh dear. Well, that's sad. I, I know nothing about him apart from um, what you said. Uh, that he was a guitarist, right? Yeah. From um, Gang 4, and he produced... Shades. But he was also our managers used to talk about him all the time, like, oh, we should get Andy Gill to do this. Yeah. Uh he also, I believe, did the Red Hot Chili Peppers eponymous album nineteen eighty four. Not widely listened to by no. people other than hardcore fans, but how's that angular? <laughs> yeah. Not gonna appear on tonight's playlist. Um Tom, what's your next song? Okay, so this is really like I think I'm I think I'm bending the rules of Angular to the point of maybe being a bit wrong because it seems like the Angular as used by music journals in 2005 is particularly about guitar lines. But to me, it's it's about the syncopation of all the instruments and it's about the stabs mm. and the snare and, um, you know, just playing a rhythm section in such a way that it's, it's really tight and staccato. So obviously mm. the police are normally associated with kind of being a white reggae band, you know, the, you know that kind of syncopation, reggae, ska-influenced stuff, rather than necessarily angular. But of course, they were there. They were part of the post-punk movement. And that track you just played, I think, is from 1978. It's when it was recorded. And that happens to be the year we were born, Charlie. Also, it happens to be the year where this song was recorded. So this was very much of that era of the angular. But... Mm. It's not what you might expect, but let's have a listen. It's one of my favorite police tracks. Doesn't have a lot of angular spiky guitar lines. 
But um, I still think it's angular. that going to that classic cliched kind of rock and roll descending very straight bit in the chorus like part of what's enjoyable is then the way it goes back to the syncopated rhythm i mean this is i reckon the songs we've been listening to like gang of four it's kind of like an acute angle or is this is more of a gentle kind of obtuse album <laughs> a knee if you will rather than an elbow but it's angular, it's got the syncopated rhythm. The... And what's interesting is that instead of the guitar stabs right on there with the snare, it's the vocal. And it's all about the vocal and snare interplaying with the bass in the verses, anyway, in the main hook. And now we're into the like kind of Anything else, it's just always a joy to just hear Stuart Copeland and the sound of the drums on it, which we spent about three days trying to get into the studio. the second verse, it changes, the bass part changes from being on the offbeat to on the onbeat, or the other way around. There's all this like playing around with the onbeat and the offbeat. So it's just a little groove, but to me it's like another, it's another side to Angular. So Hole In My Life follows Roxanne on Outlander's Moor. Right, what a pair of tunes, which the rock sound yeah. is obviously pretty angular. But. This is also clearly very jazz inspired because you've got that walking bass line and yeah. 
It's, it's a bit of jazz, it's got these Beatlesy bits, and then it's got the, yeah, the full-on syncopated Vita drums. Um, so that, just another little flavour in there. Um, this is, um, I mean, this is quite, it's quite um, indicative of what was going on in post-punk, because it was people experimenting in different directions, with kind of more jagged art-punk stuff, with borrowings. Um, influences from jazz and um, yeah, just just getting away from the power chords and experimenting a bit more with instrumentation. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just the tightness. I mean, we were obviously we were massive fans of the Police guys. Anyone listening? Cards on the table, in case it's not obvious. But um, you know, they were not bands that we were being told to listen to by record companies or the stuff that people were talking about in the early 2000s saying this is cool go and listen to it because the police was such a massively successful pop band and they were white reggae and whatever but which seems so counterintuitive tight. because you should you would expect someone from a record label to say go and listen to the police go and listen to you too not I know. <laughs> magazine but i guess they thought you know i don't know i suppose there's been a, some imitation of the police kind of consistently throughout the decades since they were big Whereas it's always about rediscovering something, isn't it? Like no one was listening to Gang of Four in 2002. So suddenly, mm. you know, they were listening to the Ramones and the punk stuff. And then it was the next. So I, sus- I don't know where we're going now. I suspect we're going to zoom straight into the 2000s. Am I right? No, we're staying. No. We're staying in the post-punk oh, good. era. We're staying in the original post-punk era. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I really like the way you chose that song. I, I wasn't aware you'd be going there. But I think they're actually quite nice links because um, I'm actually going to play a song by television because um, Marquee Moon was was one of those albums that got thrown around. Um, I found it more because it was in the press rather than handed to me by an A&R man. And we played it a lot at um, our flat on Vernon Road in Bow. Nice. Uh, in a in a council block called Cruden House, and um, <laughs> we we um, <laughs> we played uh, Marquee Moon by Television a lot, and yeah. it's it's a brilliant album. I think uh, it's it's. I hope you're cognizant clearly... of how long some of these songs can be. <laughs> yes, I deliberately didn't choose the title track Marquee Moon because it's over ten minutes long. I'm choosing. A tune called Elevation, um, ah, because it's well, partly because it's got a slight nod to our last episode, because the opening guitar stabs um, sound very similar to what the Cardigans would use in Lovefall. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that to look out for. It's the fact that there's there are these two syncopated guitar lines. There's the call and response guitars, which I think is quite um, uh, a characteristic of angular music. Um, it's got something about it, and perhaps if you listen out. For it and tell me what you think it might be um that reminds me of the red hot chili peppers californication mm. um and it's also got some hi-hat work which reminds me of stuart copeland's drumming oh, cool. um i was gonna say so, it's sort of in that vein of angular a bit more like a bit loose a bit laid back not looser but it's not like yeah. manic angular no it's not um this probably the band definitely is an angular band this may not be their most angular song it's called elevation <laughs> Can't everything.
So you know in the chorus, you hear that bit where after he goes, elevation don't go to my head, the it comes, comes in, in a bit too early. too early, and that's deliberately, I mean that's angular as fuck. <laughs> and we will also see uh, that trick played to some extent in a, in a later song by one of the second wave angular bands, but not to the same effect. I mean that, I wish I had the musical know-how to say what that is, but that's like nuts, like they haven't cut a whole beat out of the bar even, they've cut like half a beat out or something really mm. weird. Um, should probably have prepared for this by knowing what the fuck it is they're doing, but it's very effective. <laughs> I mean, the only thing about this band is I can never disassociate it in my mind from Johnny Burrell of Razorlight. <laughs> because he used to go on about television, didn't he? And he obviously, his vocal bears a passing resemblance. I think they were quite, quite an influence on Razorlight. Yes, but he wasn't the lyrical genius that Tom Verlaine was. Um, Tom Verlaine's vocal also reminds me of the Ramones. So I think, you know, whilst it was post-punk, they're still borrowing quite heavily from that scene. Mm. I think they would probably have been seen at CBGB's in the same way as uh, Blur and Pulp would have been seen at the Good Mixer. So what happened to television? Like, what? I don't know anything about them after this album. Was there any anything else? No, I don't know. I don't. How know. quickly can you Google? <laughs> Pretend you know. About <laughs> I'm sure Johnny Burrell would know. Yeah. See, this song's got a mix of kind of like angular, like kind of classic, kind of classic mainstream rock stylings with this guitar solo. I mean, this is. It's almost like Santana or something. <laughs> yeah. So it's not classic or I mean, is it? No, it's not. Their dual, so there were two guitarists, there was Tom Verlaine and then there was a guy called Richard Lloyd and they their guitar lines would play off each other. And I think this was something that inspired the Strokes as well, having those two guitars that almost kind of call and response against one another. Yeah, or one person um, do the snaps. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's what the Stones used to do as well. Uh, in a different way. I thought about the Stones, but they're just not angular. They're doing something else. It's about it's about groove, and it's about a gentle yeah. The 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 ancient art of weaving, as Keith Richards used to call it, but they didn't really do it in an angular way, usually. So, music critics said that they are uh, known for a lack of compression, groove, and extra effects provided. Uh, a blueprint for a form of chromatic rather than rhythmic music that would later come to be called angular. <laughs> they didn't say that, did they? <laughs> yeah. Someone no. called Fletcher. Did he really say angular in the context of that? Yeah. Uh, the Edge from U2 was um, influenced by this guitar sound. He later said he wanted to sound like them, and that Marky Moon's title track had changed his way of thinking about the guitar. Well, he doesn't sound anything like them, so he failed in that. He sounds like the Edge. <laughs> he sounds great, but he doesn't sound like Marky Moon. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so now we can jump. I mean, not that I really want to jump. Of course, this is the original Angular, but the reality is that the reason it even occurred to us, the reason we even know about this thing Angular, which I'm sure no one talks about anymore, is because we were in a band in the mid-2000s. So we have to acknowledge that that's... And the second wave of Angular was 
really angular. I mean, almost to the point of parody in some cases. In fact, I would say that probably the next two songs, my song and your song, would probably, I mean, they really like took it quite far, this being angular. In a way that, you know, playing in a good band, as I learned once I started to play with real musicians in, in bands, um, you know, that the bass drummer and the bass drum and the bass guitar, you know, should uh, mm. should play in time with each other, that, you know, you should hit the bass note along with the bass kick and, and have a rhythm section. But in angular music, it's like every beat of the drums corresponds to not just the bass, but the guitar. So like you would have like um, a, a rhythm that's being played on the guitar exactly the same as what's been played on the drums. So and, and often the vocal as well. So like everything is it's not necessarily like staccato and stabbing, but the rhythm is mimicked across all the instruments and often, you know, in a very fast pace. I think that's something that really you see a lot of in these noughties angular bands. Before we play one of them, um, I just thought I found this thing which on from Drowned in Sound, which is uh, still exists, I believe, but definitely I associate with that era where somebody had asked the question, what do people mean when they say angular? Uh, <laughs> this is from, uh, actually, this is from 2012. So people have been talking about angular. And some of the answers will perhaps help us. Like jagged and detached and cool is one. Like gang of four and stuff. Mm. Then we've got, they normally mean that they like wearing pointy shoes and going for tea in Dalston. Somebody That's says a la that, lazy, lazy yeah. definition. LOL, how 2006. I know, tell me about it. Um, and then there's references to block party and some other things. Um, yeah, so bouncy wiring guitar lines and very much 2005 mixtapes. So this is 2005. We're now launching into with, unless I've got the order wrong here, a band called Maximo Park. Uh, quick, quick, uh, before you jump into that, we heard playing next door to us when we went up to Newcastle to record that demo of Heroes Rule the World. Did we? Yeah, Maximo ah, we were... Park were, were in the next that. door studio, yeah. Oh dear. Geordies, they aren't they? They went on to be more successful than us, even though they're still probably not as successful as they would like. I thought you were going to say, we watched Maximo Park at a festival, you know, the one we went to with Jim's stag do. We did. It was one of those unfortunate festivals where they've got a noise limiter. And I think I was right in front of the singer. Uh, you we still couldn't were. hear him. <laughs> it was really soft. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, no this, there's a bit, this band, they also seem to be a lot of them from the Northeast, these bands, uh, like Sunderland and Newcastle. I think these guys are from Newcastle. Hmm. Um, and you've got a lot of these nice flattened vowels you get in this noughties angular music. So maybe we never cut out to be angular because we were from London and what have you, hmm. the South. It's a good band, this. Let's play it. Let's play it. This is Apply Some Pressure.
better as it goes along this song. It's like too many verses before they get to the good bit. It's a bit frenetic, isn't it? But now it gets good. Yeah, this is a good thing. See, it's better when they move to power chords. <laughs> Too fucking angry. But when they bring both melodies back and they intermingle them, as they're about to do, that gets quite special. Interesting song structure. She never goes back to that angular verse. They just do like four verses in a row. And that was the bit where I mean like they, they take almost a parody, right? The, the angularity and the... Now, it's not on the plan for this episode, but that really reminds me of Happy Hell, one of our songs, for a couple uh, of reasons. It's that you. building towards it. It's, it's also that, I think it's a fault of some bands where you've got sort of quite a good set of melodies and, and a concept that builds into a crescendo at the end. Um, and your first two minutes aren't as good as your, your last two minutes. It's weird, though, isn't it? Because it's like you have to kind of gamble on people hearing the song once to mm. the end or whatever and getting the, getting it because then once you know it's going to get good and this is definitely the case whenever i listen to happy hell you just you don't mind if the first bit's not that great because you know what's coming and it's it's the kind of building to the bit where it starts to build it's quite mm. nice little anticipation like a little d'oeuvre you know um but that song also very strongly influenced me in um another one of our songs so uh, while we're still alive just in terms of that the bit where it just drops down and he goes, let things turn out. You apply some pressure. In the bit really? where it just drops. Yeah, just, you know, it drops to the bit that goes, it doesn't matter. We can't talk about this song because you're not going to hear it. But the bit where it drops right down to the guitar before it goes into the big chorus. Well, was, new listeners should know. look out for While We're Still Alive by seeing Scarlet. Yeah. It and will Happy be Hell. out too. And Happy yes. Hell by The Clint. Those are the two songs we've referenced there. And you're going to get a third <laughs> one that will actually play you at the end, which is the most angular of all. But first, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to I'm going to go somewhere which I was debating. I think we're both debating about whether we should go here or not. Uh, <laughs> the band is Franz Ferdinand. The oh. reason we didn't is because I think they represent more to us than simply the theme of this episode. Um, certainly, 
you reckon? There's well, it's not just anger. There's Art House, and there's yeah. uh, the fact that it was a big album at a certain time in our and where we were as a band, and you couldn't help but people reference them. Um, I don't think I don't think they stole any of our hearts, but I think we were quite admiring of what they were doing at the time. Um, and this, uh, so I don't want to go into it too much because I think yeah. we'll probably go into Franz the band uh, in a in a different episode. But this song, Michael, is oh, I forgot about this song. A very good ex- exposition of angularity. Um, well remembered. I wasn't thinking of this song, so yeah, it's um, it's not just as dumb and four to the floor disco as some of their other songs. Mm. Um, Everyone has to, by the way, I don't know if it's obvious to people, to listeners now, but this album was completely fucking unavoidable in 2004-05. I mean, this band were just ruling, weren't they? 2004, And an interesting uh, little, what's the word when you do something off to the side? Side? Aside, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Aside. I had segue in my brain. Um, an interesting aside: the producer of this album, Toy Hansen, was oh. also uh, responsible for producing the Cardigans from our last uh, episode. Oh, that's so, a smart move. Yeah. Yes, here we go, Michael. Oh, what's angular? <laughs> intrigued to hear it because firstly it's I think we've uncovered within the course of this episode that there's two real variants to the angular thing and one is the like single note thin sounding telecaster or whatever guitar lines played Picasso. and the other one is the stabs uh, you know and this does both of them at the same time so it's like ultimate angular it has these little snare stabs in the background but also, the chorus is a bit of a mess, isn't it? The bass is too booming for me. Yeah. 
I don't think anything interesting is going to happen now. What do you mean the, 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 um, the chorus is a mess? Well, I don't know, I mean... It doesn't have the tightness of Gang of Four or the Police, does it? Well, yeah, it feels to me a bit... I don't know, maybe it's just my sceptical ear, like, listening back. I feel like it's... I just feel like the whole thing is not very... Terrible word to say, but not very genuine. <laughs> I feel like um, they've tried to make a discordant-sounding punky chorus. Along with doing this, it just, it just sounds like it's trying too hard. I think, I think that's a definition of Franz Ferdinand. They yeah. were trying to make a sound. It was almost like an art project. The um, I, I once met a guy in Amsterdam who told me about a group of friends who were artists and they set out to create a venue in Amsterdam called Seymour Likely's. And their, their, their artistic proposition was, let's create the hippest place in town where all the cool people go. What would you need to do to create that? And it was an artificial artistic creation. And they did it. And they created the, the coolest place to go and then they closed it down. Um, it felt like Franz Ferdinand was a, a couple of clever art school people saying like, hey, what if we took this and just decided to you know create this project where we got a whole lot of people to dance to uh, angular music? Yeah, it's um, almost like it was... It was cooked up by all those A&R men handing us magazine and CDs. But, um, but really, yeah, interesting. And Alex Capranos was, of course, a lot older than everybody else. And this was like, there was this whole thing about him hiding his age or something. And of course, this was a source of great comfort to us because we were like, oh, we're getting old. We haven't got a record deal with 27 or whatever we were. And I remember Nick Moore going, don't worry, Alex Capranos is 34. <laughs> but it was very like, I don't, he was, um, they knew what they were doing. They weren't just some 20-somethings dicking around. They were like, this is what's needed right now. We need to combine these influences from post-punk and new wave with a homoerotic lyric. And it, the whole thing just feels contrived. Um, but, you know, it did the job at the time, I guess. The other one I was torn between th this and was Darts of Pleasure. Um, yeah. And the, the the track Darts of Pleasure was, the I think, the one that got them the first discovered. One. Yeah. And the name is just angular. Darts of Pleasure. Yeah, although just... the song's not that angular. No, it's not. That's why I didn't <laughs> include it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so now we're very much in the era, um, 2004-05. So this is the last song. And this, to me, is obviously very angular. And it, particularly in, the, in, in terms of that. The last part, of your songs. The last of my songs. Yeah, that's, right. mm. I thought that's what I said. I'm not trying to reduce your finale. Um, <laughs> your grand. Um, and what a finale it is. Yes. But yeah, so... I mean, the, 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 the angular guitar lines and the kind of spiky guitar lines. But what I like about this band and that first album, which was, to me, this is like a, a fresh sound in comparison with, let's say, the two bands we've just heard. Because something about that drummer, Simon Tong, so for those who might have guessed, I'm talking about Block Party. And I think that drummer subsequently left on the basis and they all fell out and they basically went downhill and didn't make any good albums as far as I can tell since, since the first one. But, um, and even then, I don't think it was all good, but they just had a couple of singles that were angular, but also I think partly because of the drummer and just, they were obviously very smart as well. And of course they famously sucked up to Franz Ferdinand and wrote them a letter and something. You probably know the story better than I do. What did they do? I don't know. I know. I know. Simon White, who was our manager, um, left left our band to go and manage Block Party. I was so, leaving that story for later, so I could storm out in rage at the end of the track. That also fine. happened. But no, apparently, Block Party wrote Franz Ferdinand saying something about 
just how they love them because they go on tour with them or something. I can't remember what it was. And then they did go on tour with them. Um, anyway, this song, what I want to say about this song, finally, is that in this time when we were trying to make it, and I, I remember being in the Barfly, and we were always in the Barfly in the Dublin Castle, what have you. And there were these bands coming up that we saw as our rivals, but they were obviously getting a lot more press and publicity, but they weren't massive yet. And Block Party was one of them. So was Kaiser Chiefs, very different, not angular. But um, this track came on and I was like, fair dues. Like, that does something. And uh, hmm. yeah, so put it on because I, yeah, I do like it, even though I don't like all of their stuff and we can probably do better. And our manager shouldn't have gone to left us <laughs> to manage them. <laughs> um, this is from Angel Range. They really went for it by playing two almost the same guitarists over each other as well, which is a bit different from what those other bands are doing. And then the, um, you know, obviously those little whoos in the chorus, they've got their television like coming back in a bit early. And then they've got that post-chorus, quite like a good post-chorus. afraid to put some quite big expansive sounds in as well you know those big kind of full reverb almost edge guitars going over the spiky stuff 
yeah. The drummer is very talented. It's just like a little bundle of energy. It's a bit like Mike, our first drummer, but like, not. But there's very little of the kind of ride cymbals and the room sound. It's very much snare and bass drum. Yeah. Yeah, it's something about the production of the drum. So are we saying that he is on the same level as, um, who's the chap from Razorlight who made Razorlight good, uh, the drummer? Well, the, the, the guy from, the drummer wrote, wrote all the songs, I think. I don't know, rather than being- The drummer of Blood Party? No, no, in Razorlight. I think the thing about the drummer in Razorlight was not, I'm not saying he was a bad drummer, but um, I don't remember anything particularly special. Or maybe it was, maybe his drumming was a bit. No, 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 I don't think he was an, an incredible yeah. drummer. He's, he's just a good songwriter. And um, well, Razorlight did Up All Night as the, the first version of it with a different drummer and it was a bit lame. And oh, yeah. He, yeah, he, was he, came, he came in. Um, actually, um, I remember, I remember when we get on to talking about the song of ours that we're playing at the end, when we're in the studio, someone saying, there's this guy, Andy, I think his name is, uh, he's looking for a band. Andy. Andy. There's this guy, yeah. Andy. He's a drummer. He's looking yeah. for a band. And it was Andy. Oh, what's his name? Go to Google, Tom. Um, <laughs> Andy, the guy. Yes. Yes. Andy, I mean, Andy he had prominent features. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's also... He was involved in The Snowman and The Snow Dog, which is now a staple of Christmas. He's written a lot of stuff, hasn't he? A lot of soundtracks and clearly a very talented guy. Although I have to say, I didn't... I mean, he wrote America and all that stuff, which is number one, but it's not in my top... It's not in my top ten songs. No, no, I think <laughs> the interesting thing is is to observe what Razorlight were before and what they became and how someone with a slightly more kind of... yeah, Talent? Different <laughs> set of skills... Let's move on. He did leave as well. He left in 2009. Um, yeah, talented guy, Andy Burrows. Andy Burrows. Hmm. So this band is to draw a kind of end point on Andy Gill, because Andy Gill produced their album, and we've spoken about them earlier in this episode, The Future Heads. We played a gig with The Future Heads at the Dublin Castle, I think as part of Club Fandango and or uh, Fierce Panda Records Night. Um, it was... I would say it was the first gig as the cling that got us attention. Uh, we didn't know the future heads, and I don't think we stayed and watched their gig, but they were clearly getting attention. And then whoever came to their, their gig saw us, and we started getting attention from A&R people. Oh, shit, right. What I thought. I was thinking, yeah, of course we would have watched their gig, but then I realised that's not what you do, is it? You go off and get pissed. You're like, we played. We did a good gig. I think we did a good gig, and I think it was... A great buzz because obviously, yeah, they were getting attention. It was a key moment actually for us in in <laughs> in our hypothetical career. Yes, I mean, it, it changed everything, didn't it? <laughs> um, so this, I don't really like the future heads. Is the problem? Um, no. This is another example of one where they like they really. Oh, hang on, which song are you playing? So. The Hounds of Love is the song that you would play because it was yeah. their biggest hit. Uh, but I'm playing Decent Days and Nights. Good. So this one, this one again is like, it's like you know, let's just hit everything on the same beat and really be like really angular. Um, mm. I don't like their version of Hounds of Love actually. I think it's, I think just nobody knew the original song at that time. No one's to Kate Bush. They were like, this is a good song. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> here we go. Uh, this 
That's a good little hook. That's the best thing about the song. If the least you can do is show some restraint, then the most you can do is get carried away. I'd rather listen to my Sharona. Yeah, quite. Well, that's also there in the background. I'd rather listen to this without the vocals. But yeah, I mean, my Sharona, it's just too... I play that every week at Club de Fromage as a DJ. I can't think of it as anything other than a mainstream pop song. But I mean, that was quite angular. When I listen to this music, I don't, they could be think, uh, describing the most heartfelt love story, the most tragic death story. I can't find emotion in this music. It's all from the head and nothing from the heart. Yeah, and there were quite a lot of bands. And I suppose that, you know, that's what these post-punk bands like, what are they called, um, Gang of Four, were very, uh, very cerebral, right? Very intellectual. They were all like reading Guy Debord and talking about fucking Frankfurt School and stuff. So I think this, this, a lot of these bands also thought they had to be very like, it wasn't about emotion, it wasn't raw, it wasn't, with, with some exceptions. And that's my problem with Hands of Love, the version of Hands of Love. If you listen to that song, I cried once listening to that song by Kate Bush. It's just a pop song, but this, you get what she means. The Hounds yeah. of Love are calling, they're like, she's out of control, it's passion, it's like, it's moving. But they sing it like, blah, 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 you know, like this. Yeah, and they go, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> You might notice the correlation between the bands who slag off a bit and the ones that we played gigs with who went on to become more successful than us. <laughs> no, genuinely, I'm not trying to have a go no. at the future heads. It's just I, I, I recognise their talent. Um, I respect the fact that they went further than us. But I, you know, you don't, you're not put on this earth to love everything, are you? No. And actually, I was very nice about Block Party, and we have a very big reason to have a grudge against them. So. Yeah, you, you looked quizzically over the Zoom link when I said the Angel Range. Yeah, I think the album, what's the Angel Range? That was the name of Block Party before they changed the Oh, uh, okay, Party. I thought you were talking about the album, it's called Silent yeah. Alarm, that's what I was like, what are you talking about? <clears throat> so we, we, we recorded with a guy called Graham Spence up in Clapton. Yes. And Block Party had done some of their demos there as yes. the Angel Range. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember listening to him in his place. So I think we're... We're nearing the end of this week's episode. One thing I do want to say is, you know, it's, it's quite interesting that leap between basically 1978 and 2004, which is what we've done. I mean, that's actually mm. 25, that's 25 years, right? Um, in which we didn't seem to have much angular music to play. And it's, it is quite interesting because if you listen to the post-punk stuff and New Wave, a lot of the New Wave is not very angular. It gets, that's going on, but then there's all the electro comes in and it's blended in with disco and electronic. And then you just... In my mind, there's some kind of like, if I was synesthetic, syn syn 
what do you call it, synesthetic? Is that when you can see sounds? <laughs> yeah, they're like, I'm thinking of the 80s in relation to this conversation, this episode, mm. and this big glossy sheen just kind of comes over all the music. And that in itself kind of eradicates and suffocates angularity, right? Because it's like a it, vaccine. Yeah, it just like swamps uh, angularity in its wake. And there really isn't a lot of angular music. And then even in the 90s, and then Britpop, of course, it's sometimes bouncy, it's sometimes dirgy. Very rarely angular, with the exception, actually, of Elastica, who did some quite mm. angular stuff. And I didn't give due credence to the extent to which they ripped people off in the last episode. I was reading a bit about rip-offs for this because I was listening to Wire. There's another band mm. we could have played. I mean, I knew that Connection was a rip-off of Wire, but there's another song that's a rip-off of Wire. And then also Waking Up, which we played last week, is The Stranglers were ripped off. Wire and the Stranglers sued Elastica for three songs just off their solo album, and they were settled out of court. <laughs> so they were really one of them. But the other um, band who was occasionally Anglo was the Manic Street Peaches. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, apart from that, 25 years, and then it all came back with a bang. So we are now going to, as we always do, progress towards one of our songs. Um, this may or may not be Angular. But <laughs> it's angular. It's from that time, and it was our response to the request to be more fucking angular. Uh, but I wouldn't do it down. I think also this this song came out of like a very real place, man. It, like we jammed it out of nowhere. I don't think we were trying that hard to. It's yeah. We should just put it on. Actually, no, no. I do want to talk about it before because uh, we're not going to talk over it. The the song that we are about to play is called "Slightly More Than None at All." And we have two versions of it. One was recorded as The Cling at Lots Road, a studio uh, Chelsea in, Chelsea, in Chelsea Reach, um, with our incarnation with Mike Toller on drums and Tom Penn on sax. We would later disband as The Cling and form Seeing Scarlet, but we'd re-record slightly more than none at all as Seeing Scarlet with Charlie Layton on drums and no sax. Um, both versions have their merits, but I think when we listened to both of them, the Cling track won out, didn't it? It has the edge. I mean, apart from anything else, it's just mixed in such a way that it's way loud, or I don't know if it was mastered mm. or something. But also, Jack Reynolds did something with the expansive sound of the drums, right? I don't know if it's the room they're in, that great holy grail of the drum sound. Not everyone likes that kind of drum sound, but mm. I think it works. And um, it's got an energy to it. The other thing I've always railed against is when producers of vocals choose to take the gain down such that you're not getting any distortion or uh, breakup in the vocal. Um, yeah. And it was a myth that I think Adele dispelled on her big hit, Rolling in the Deep. Do you know Rolling in the Deep? I, I, I'm familiar with that song. It completely <laughs> distorts the vocal yeah. sound. And then you think how many radio plays that that's got and how many sales it's yeah. got. And I just want to go back to every single producer that told us to not, you know, turn it down. I'll, I'll fix it afterwards. You know, we just need to get a nice clean vocal. No, yeah. fucking make the vocal track distorted. And Jack, to his credit, Jack Reynolds, uh, got a vocal tone that I'm really pleased with on this. So, yeah. Um, yeah. This is called Slightly More Than None at All. Thank you. 
kisses, brushes and near misses, shoulders and eyelashes, catching a breath is tickets and air kisses, brushes and near misses, shoulders and eyelashes, catching a breath is slightly more than none at all. It's 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 a break, it's a fall, it's a knock, it's a call, and actually, it's not much at all. Like a moth to a flame, it's a death, it's a shame, oh, when you look at it closely, it's not much at all. I'm in time for the dormant. It's a break, it's a fall, it's a knock, it's a call, and actually, it's not much at all. Like a moth to a flame, it's a death, it's a shame, when you look at it closely, it's not much at all. See what I mean about that distorted vocal at the end? I love it. I think I just all, all of the sounds on that song are ones that producers would conventionally say were bad <laughs> because, like, <laughs> you know, that swishy cymbal, the hi hat is too much treble, you know, yeah. the guitars don't sound that good, uh, the vocals distorting, but it just it comes together for me with an energy that just amounts to so much more than the other version, which is like cleaner and all each sound is probably nicer produced, but just more lackluster as an overall that's a lesson people in bands don't listen to producers yeah um i might for those who are interested just leave the other version to play at the end of this episode <laughs> play uh, us out. for the sake of, the sake of <laughs> comparison um but um go on just because i played them back to back today uh as i you sent them to me and i went to have a listen and my kids my four-year-old was there and um I put the first one on and they were kind of groovy and I liked it. And then it came on again because I played the second version. My son, my four-year-old was like, what is this song, daddy? 
I was like, do you like it? He's like, yeah. So but after one listen, he was like, well up for hearing it again. <laughs> so if our audience or anything like that. So you don't think it was the Julian Standen studio version that had him hooked and the first No, one no, I ignored. think it's the, he heard it was coming back again. I don't think he was tuned to those, uh, yeah, mics on the snare drum. Well, that was an interesting episode. We need to go away and have a think about what's next. Uh, there are rumours afoot that band members will be joining us in future episodes, but uh, nothing as yet confirmed. Very hard to pin them down. Yeah. In the meantime, Tom, have a lovely week, and I will reconvene and see you this time next one. Thank you. Likewise. Good so, night, everybody. Good Enjoy. night, listeners. Bye. Time for the postman, I'm in Climb to Boston